The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 19. And we do have a well-worn path to this chapter as we come to the sixth part of our subject, the Spirit of Christ. Last week, we detoured from the study to take up another topic, and that was to speak primarily about the evangelistic method of Jesus. Our attendance last week was not what I would call in the stellar category, but I do believe that message was important for all of us. Uh, so I do hope that if you didn't hear it, that you would uh, listen to the website. Uh, Brother Randy faithfully puts up the podcast every week so you can listen to the sermons. And I do hope that uh, in the future we can work towards getting those videos more current. And we do have them all recorded. We just have difficulty with someone getting those to the website. But regardless of that, we do have the audio. And if you haven't heard the sermon, it is good for the church. And I do think that everyone needs to hear it. Our study of the Holy Spirit will include the necessity of the Spirit's work in our efforts of evangelism. In fact, without the Spirit working in a person's heart, all of our efforts are useless. They are in vain because only the Holy Spirit can convince people of the gospel of Christ. Well, as we look at our subject again today, I I don't think that I need to explain to you that our reference in the Spirit of Christ is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the reason the title is chosen is to emphasize that Christ is the focus of Scripture. We do understand that our God is a triune God, three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the functions of each are found throughout the Bible. And yet, as we read Scripture and we see the Father and the Holy Spirit, we also see most notably that in the very beginning, going back to Genesis chapter 3, Uh, that it is foretold that the focus would be on the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would become the entire focus of the Bible's message. We see this in types and figures. There in Genesis, you have Abel's lamb of sacrifice. There is Noah's ark of safety uh, typifying Jesus Christ. There is the substitution of a ram for Isaac. Then when you come to the Exodus and there is the Passover lamb and the tabernacle, Then comes the wilderness wanderings. It goes on to the establishment of David's kingdom and the promise of an eternal king who would rule from the Davidic throne in a worldwide kingdom. And then there are those prophecies of the Old Testament about the first and second advents of Christ and the subsequent unfolding of this when we get into the New Testament, then the calling of Christ's church, then Christ crucified, Christ resurrected as the hope of our resurrection to eternal life. And then we see Christ enthroned in glory forever. Well, through all of this, the Father and the Spirit are there. But in Jesus' own words, he said that the Holy Spirit would not speak of himself, that he would not come to take over the redemptive emphasis that belongs to Christ, but rather the Spirit would glorify Christ and reveal the truth about him. So it's not our purpose in in teaching these messages to put the Holy Spirit in his place. Our purpose is just to explain 
what that place is as it's revealed in the word of God. So our purpose then is to remove confusion about his deity and how he works in the world today. Well, our text verses are once again chapter 19 verses 1 through 6 in Acts. We're not spending time in this scripture on all the different doctrinal inferences. I'm only using a part of it to identify with confusion and ignorance experienced today in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now I mentioned in the in the second message that the Holy Spirit has been called the forgotten person of the Godhead. And that's not because there's a lack of information throughout the Bible uh, on him and what he does, but because he has been often ignored in sermons and exposition of God's word. About 400 years ago, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, there is a general confusion in the saints of God and they're not giving the Holy Spirit that glory that is due his person and for his great work of salvation in us insomuch that we have in our hearts almost forgotten this third person. 200 years passed and George Smeaton wrote in 1880, we may safely affirm that the doctrine of the Spirit is almost entirely ignored. Well, those are very interesting statements because both Goodwin and Smeaton would be surprised to find that today the work of the Holy Spirit has not been ignored, but has been twisted and confused to do him the greatest dishonor. And so that it would be better that he were forgotten than to be abused by doctrines advocated like those in the charismatic movement. But I'm going to save all that for later. At another time, I will discuss the abuses of the Spirit. And then we'll have the opportunity to look at modern movements that emphasize the Holy Spirit that are not only wrong, but they are blasphemous claims of his work. So it's amazing as you look at this, how Satan can go from one extreme to the other, from forgetting the Holy Spirit altogether to, to, to perverting him and bringing him to the forefront of people's minds so they teach and uh, practice the wrong things concerning him. So in the old times or in, in the times of the Puritans, it was sort of kept silent. Now the Holy Spirit is shouted from the housetops. The silence is wrong and emphasizing the Spirit in the wrong way is also wrong. So we're exploring the scriptures to find out who the Holy Spirit is and what part he plays in our salvation and in the continuing lives of Christians. We can't afford not to know him. Now, one writer said the great thing in Christianity is the gift of the spirit of the spirit, the essential, vital, central element in the life of the soul and the work of the church is the person of the spirit. Well, if you look at our text verses, I'm not going to read them all through again. Uh, to explain, lest you have forgotten, there were some disciples that Paul met in Ephesus. And he asked them in verse number two, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. These were believers. They were unaware that the promised Messiah had come. Thus, they were unaware that he was crucified and had risen from the dead. They were unaware that he made a promise that the Holy Spirit would come. They were unaware that since Pentecost, the Spirit began a new work in the people of God. Well, we go to our outline, and uh, if this is your first time today to hear a message in the series, there's much catching up to do. I've used one outline through the entire 
uh, or through the previous five messages. And I can't detail all of that, so let me just give you the, the headings and just a little bit of comment, and then we'll resume where we left off in the last message. First, we spoke that the Holy Spirit is a person, that he's not an impersonal force. He has all the characteristics of the person. I don't mean that he is human, not like taking on flesh as Christ did, but he is a divine person, a separate person in the identi- with identity in the Trinity. Number two, that the Holy Spirit is deity. He is known as the third person of the Trinity, which is not an indication that he's third in rank and power. But as usual, the Holy Spirit is mentioned third in the list. Uh, an example would be the Trinitarian formula of baptism. When we say we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we do this because we want to show that the Holy Spirit is equal in power and authority to the Father and the Son. And that they are all three one God. Then thirdly, the Holy Spirit is God's agent in our present world. It is the Holy Spirit that is active in the world. And it's been that way since the creation uh, with the only exceptions, you might say, of being the pre-manifestations of Christ in the Old Testament, and then for the period of his incarnation when he was walking the earth. But at all other times, it is the Holy Spirit who is the primary agent of God's work in the world. We've noted four areas in which the Holy Spirit works or is working. The first would be the ministry of creation. that God created the world through the administration of the Holy Spirit. Secondly is the ministry of Christ. And when Christ came into the world, it was the Holy Spirit, the seed of God, that impregnated the Virgin Mary. Through his life, it was the Holy Spirit that aided him and sustained him in trials. It was through the power of the Spirit that he did his miracles. And according to Scripture, it is the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Thirdly is his ministry in the canon That is, the Holy Spirit is God's agent or was God's agent in the writing of Scripture. That he inspired men to write the words of God so that when we read the Bible, we're reading every word that God intended to say to man. There are no other words. There is no other revelation but the completed canon of Scripture. Then fourthly is the ministry of the Christian. Uh, This is where we left off last time, and we looked at uh, many ways in which the Spirit works in the life of the Christian. The Spirit's work begins with regeneration. Regeneration is the new birth. It's when the Holy Spirit begins to work beneath the consciousness of a lost person to bring him to the point of repentance and faith. In conjunction with the preaching of the Word, the Holy Spirit gives understanding of the sinful condition, and that we must trust Christ for the salvation of our souls. So regeneration is that awakening of a spiritually dead person to come alive and understand his sinfulness and trust Christ to save him. Next is sanctification. The Holy Spirit is God's agent in sanctification. The word simply means to be set apart to God. It is to be made holy. Uh, First, we talked about definitive or positional sanctification, that our moral condition is changed from unholiness to holiness when we trust Christ. And at that point, we are as holy as we will ever be 
as moral requirements are concerned, to enter into the presence of God. That is our positional sanctification. And to that I could refer now, if I wanted to, to Eduardo, uh, who I spoke about just a few minutes ago, that we're not waiting on some work to be done, not his baptism or anything else that would grant him the privilege of being in heaven. No, he could go today if the Lord so required, and there would be nothing else. He is as holy as he will be as far as moral condition is concerned. But we do understand that we all live in the flesh. We have a sinful nature. And so the Holy Spirit must work in us on a daily basis as we walk with God. And that is called our progressive sanctification. That we live experientially in the power of God who enables us to do works that are pleasing to God. Thirdly is our glorification. The Holy Spirit will glorify the believer. And this is the change of the body from corruption to incorruption. This is what occurs at the resurrection, our resurrection, when Christ comes again. When he comes, he will raise our bodies and glorify them. So our bodies then will uh, be a body that's rid of the sinful nature. It will be rejoined with our spirit, which is in heaven. And then we'll live in the uh, complete perfection of God. So we see then that the Holy Spirit is involved from the very beginning in the regeneration of a Christian to receive Christ as Savior. Uh, he's there from the inception at regeneration and he goes all the way through our lives to the end of our lives and beyond to the completion of our sanctification, which is our glorification. Now what I'd like to do today is go a little bit further. Uh, I'm taking kind of slow steps as we go through this. I want to go back and explore a little bit more about what happens during the middle part of our lives. This would be the time between our regeneration and our glorification. This is the time that we've described as our time of progressive sanctification. And I want us to see some things that are going on during this sanctifying process. The Holy Spirit is always at work in the believer. He is tireless. There is never a time that he leaves us. There is never a time when he's not active within us. We belong to God, so he's never going to leave us alone. And we must be thankful for that, because if he weren't in us all the time, we would very quickly fall away from our salvation. He is the power that keeps us. Well, I have three more areas that I want to discuss concerning the agency of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Christian. Now, new for us today would be the fourth aspect in the ministry of the Christian, which is communication, our communication with God. The Holy Spirit is active in the life of the believer as we communicate with God. Now, if I ask you, I'm sure you know the answer to this question, how does our communication with God take place? And I think all of us would answer, well, we do that in prayer. We communicate with God in prayer. Well, does that mean then that the only time that you can communicate with God is when you come here and we have our corporate prayers and you listen to me and maybe you're praying or hopefully along with me as I pray? Is it only when you come to church? Uh, is it only when you can take time, take the time to specifically get down on your knees to talk with God, or to go someplace private, as some would call their prayer closet, wherever that might be, and take time to be with God in that way. And I would say if you think that that's the only communication that you have with God, you would be wrong. 
Because you have communication with God at any part of the day, at any place, any conscious thought of God is communication with God in prayer. And it's important for us to understand it that way because it is the Holy Spirit that aids this form of communication. And the Bible tells us that we are to pray without ceasing. We can only pray without ceasing if the communication with God takes place beyond the times that we are formally in the posture of prayer. But as I say this, I don't want you to misunderstand because don't think that you have satisfied God because you say, I really don't need to do anything because God reads my mind and therefore I'm in communication with him. No, there must be conscious times of prayer. There must be those times that we consciously and specifically talk to God. Um, and this is when it can be those times that you pour out your heart to him uh, in a sincere and determined way. Those are communications that are needed. But the rest of the time, the Holy Spirit is also there to keep you in fellowship and communion with God so that you feel his presence at all times. And I would say this is very valuable. You ought to consider that, that you go through your day, you ought to be thinking about God. In every situation that you face, maybe you don't exactly call out to God every time, but everything you do is a reflection of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit being in you so that you can communicate back and forth with God at any time that you choose to do it. Now, I'd like to, re uh, to remind you of this scripture in Romans 8.26. I'd like you to turn there if you would, because we're, we'll have it on the screen. But I'd like you to look at this and hold on to Romans 8 for just a minute. We're going to talk about this for a few minutes. Uh, those of you that come to the afternoon class, you remember a couple of weeks ago that we had much discussion on this verse. The verse says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now let's look at this and see if we can understand it better. In the first message, all the way back, I think that was in June, I used this verse and after the service was over, I was asked this question. Is it okay to pray to the Holy Spirit? I know there are some that would answer the question differently than I do. And so I don't want you to think that I have a corner on all things about prayer. That I know all the truth there is to know about prayer. I don't claim that. But it seems to me that in a formal sense that Jesus taught his disciples to pray to the Father and to pray in his name. That is to pray for and ask in his name. The model prayer in Matthew 6 begins this way. Our Father, which art in heaven. Then later, Jesus said, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, I will do it. Now that's what I think about the proper way to approach God, but I'm not going to say that I think that that is a strict commandment that you can't pray to Jesus, that you can't pray to the Holy Spirit. Whenever you say something, and I hear it many times, someone says, Thank you, Jesus. Well, who are you talking to? Well, you're not talking to me, you're talking to him. And that's an expression of prayer. We have a song that uh, we used to sing. I don't think we've sung it in a while. It says, come, Holy Spirit, I need thee. Come, sweet spirit, I pray. Oh, obviously, that is directed to the Holy Spirit. 
So I don't want you to be confused when I say that the formal way to pray and address your prayers is to the Father. You can communicate God with God in these other ways too because every prayer is to the triune God. But I will tell you this, that I think that public prayers are best addressed more formally to the Father. And I might add that closing our prayers in the name of Jesus leaves no ambiguity as to the identity of the Father that we're praying to. Our Father may be interpreted in many ways by many different religions, but when we approach the Father in the name of Christ, there is no doubt that our prayers are directed to the Holy God of the Scriptures. And this is the very thing that generic prayers deny. And it's the reason that government institutions like schools, the military, do not want public invocations in or to include the name of Jesus. And the reason that they don't is they fear offending people. They fear being exclusive rather than inclusive. But I would tell you, I don't have any fear of that. Jesus said many will be offended by him. We fully expect that to happen. And so for a Christian to pray an inclusive prayer that could be interpreted for all religions is no better than Elijah standing on Mount Carmel and crying out to Baal or any Canaanite god while still addressing his prayers also to Jehovah God. It makes no sense. We can't be inclusive in our prayers. There's only one God, and that's our Father that we find in Scripture. Now, going back to Romans 8.26, Paul said, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Well, here you see that there is a problem with the ability to approach God in the right way. Paul calls them our infirmities. Well, this would cause us then to consider the Spirit's work in or because of human frailty. Now, you'll notice that, that Paul doesn't elaborate on any specific weakness. There are some areas in which uh, Christians are weaker than others. Some have more faith than others. Some are deeper thinkers than others. There are some that have more compassion than others. But while some may have less trouble praying than others, we all have trouble with our prayers. We all uh, come before God with a sinful nature and still fraught with all sorts of human limitations. We are finite beings. We can't hope in our sinfulness that we could meet the infinite God on his level. Now, in our afternoon session, I, I compared this to a backward person who was never accustomed to be invited to a formal dinner at a rich person's house. And so as he sits down to dinner, he sees before him many forks and spoons and knives and dishes. He doesn't know the order in which to use those. So he sits there sort of dumbfounded. He doesn't know the etiquette of eating at a formal dinner. And I think that's a crude illustration of how we are ignorant of the way that we ought to enter God's presence in prayer. We don't know what to do or how to do it. And then we also have this problem of not knowing God's perfect will. We can't even understand the perfect will of God because Scripture says that God's ways are past finding out. When you come to God, you know, we were talking about James 4 just a moment ago. When you come to God, 
uh, you can't see future events. You can't see how his providence works out in the big picture of it all. We don't fully understand the providence of God, how all things work together for our good. And so we don't always know what's best to ask for. We may ask for things that God's not inclined to give at all because he has seen the big picture of what that would do. Well, there are, I think it was Charles Hodge who said that heathen philosophers have used this to teach that people shouldn't pray because you can't do it perfectly. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we should pray and, and we are frail and we do come to God with imperfect prayers. Sometimes that is deliberate and selfish. James says we do it to consume it upon our own lusts. We don't do it for the glory of God. We desire things that promote self rather than the glory of God. And those prayers we rule out because the Holy Spirit is not interested in dealing with those. Those are the prayers that fall flat on the floor. They never get through the ceiling. But there are other sincere prayers that are not right. They are outside the will of God and they need to be corrected. Sometimes we don't even know there's a spiritual need. And if we do know there is, we don't begin to understand how to ask about the need. So human frailty, human weakness, human ignorance sparks the Holy Spirit into action for us. Then next is spiritual inability. Now when we, when we are unable, the Spirit is abundantly able. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, the Spirit searches the deep things of God. Because he is God, he knows the mind of God, he knows the will of God, and so he performs a spiritual work that perfects our prayers and articulates the need. Now the verse says, the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There are groanings, there is turmoil, there's rumbling in our spirit as we search for the right way to come to God. Now, if we look at that word groanings, um, commentators are divided on what those groanings are. Some say that it is the spirit that groans, that it's part of the secret work of God that we're not privy to. Others say, well, these groanings are ours. These are our deepest sighs that we can't express with language. They certainly aren't a heavenly prayer language that is unintelligible intelligible gibberish. It wouldn't be that. But the Spirit is there to make intercession for us. He articulates the need. And as he does, he teaches us how to pray. Now it's interesting, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him to teach them to pray. And it's not as if they'd never prayed themselves. They prayed, they'd heard many prayers. They were used to hearing sanctimonious prayers of the scribes and Pharisees. The type that would be self-aggrandizing, as we read in Luke chapter 18. The disciples, though, noticed something very different about Jesus. They could see the deep sorrow that he had in his soul. They knew his unusual compassion, the earnestness of his prayers. And it was obvious that Jesus did something different. That his prayers were meaningful and effectual. So they come to him and they ask, them, ask him to teach us to pray in that way. Now obviously today, we don't have that benefit. We don't have the benefit of seeing Jesus. We don't have the benefit of hearing him audibly to, to teach us about these things. We can read his prayers. 
but we don't see we don't see his face we don't see the the body language we don't see the expressions as he prayed and surely none of us would understand the groanings that he went through in the garden of gethsemane i mean it was so intense the bible says his sweat were as it were great drops of blood let me read that to you listen to the bible's description and just tell me have you ever seen anything like this i mean this was so intense that the father sent an angel to strengthen him Luke 22, it says, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat were as, was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We've never seen anything like that. We don't have the benefit of being taught in the way the apostles were taught. We don't see that intensity. We don't hear him pray. We don't see him pray. And so in his absence, who is our teacher? Who can bring us to this point where prayers are effectual, where they are heard, where they're earnest, where they get their intended desire? Well, the Holy Spirit is God's agent in the world to help our prayers. And as we continue to pray, there is a little bit of perfection that works progressively in each one of those prayers. Now, put it very simply to you, the more you pray, the better you will be at it. Keep praying. Now, some people think that long prayers are the best prayers. Oh, if we could just pray those really, really long prayers that you've read in the old saints of God. And someone said the best way to kill a prayer meeting is for everybody to pray a long prayer. I explained to our class that when I was a child, my dad made me attend all the men's prayer meetings. Uh, before special meetings, we'd have one or two weeks of members uh, prayer in members' homes, and the men and women would split up. My dad would take me to the men's prayer room. My mother would take my little sister to the women's prayer room, and we would sit there and listen to them pray. And I remember the old country gentlemen that uh, gentlemen there that that were in our church in the hills of Kentucky they would pray the longest prayers I mean I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody pray prayers that long before or since and I was just little and, and I was sitting there thinking that eternity would come before they would ever get through with this thing so I would invent ways to pass the time I would time the prayers and record those. And I would have in my mind that the one that prayed the longest prayer would get the prize at the end for being the longest winded. But the longest prayers aren't necessarily the best. But I can tell you that since I've never heard anybody pray like those old farmers in bib overalls as they poured out their hearts to God and asked him to send revival to his church. Now, just as an aside to this, there's a story that James Montgomery Boyce told about long and short prayers. This was in the ministry of George Whitfield and John Wesley. And if you don't know who they are, they were uh, ministers who had a certain points of theology that were different in the Great, uh, different in the great Awakening. But Boyce um, writes about it this way. He says, at one point in the course of their very influential ministries, George Whitfield, the Calvinist evangelist, and John Wesley, the Arminian evangelist, were preaching together in the daytime and rooming together in the same boarding house each night. One evening, after a particular strenuous day, the two of them returned to the boarding house exhausted and prepared for bed. When they were ready, each knelt beside the bed to pray. Whitfield prayed like this, 
Lord, we thank thee for all of those with whom we spoke today. And we rejoice that their lives and destinies are entirely in thy hand. Honor our efforts according to thy perfect will. Amen. Pretty short prayer. He rose from his knees and got into bed. Wesley, who had hardly gotten past the invocation of his prayer in this length of time, looked up from the side of the bed and said, Mr. Whitfield, is this where your Calvinism leads you? Then he put his head down and went on praying. Whitfield stayed in bed and went to sleep. About two hours later, Whitfield woke up, and there was Wesley still on its knees beside his bed. So Whitfield got up and went around the bed to where Wesley was kneeling. When he got there, he found Wesley asleep. He shook his shoulders and said to him, Mr. Wesley, is this where your Arminianism leads you? Uh, many of you, I think, could probably identify that with that. Drifting off to sleep while you're trying to pray. Well, that doesn't mean the prayer doesn't get heard. And if you pray a short one before you go to bed, it can still be heard. But whether they're long or they're short, we do need the Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us what is right and what is in the will of God. Now let me return to thoughts about the groanings that are in the verse. I side with commentators who believe that this is non-verbalized communications within the Godhead. That these are uh, things that are understood and relayed between the Spirit and the Father. We don't know what they are. But they are the very things that make prayers effectual, that turn mistaken prayers into effectual prayers. Now, notice concerning Romans 8 also how the Holy Spirit has help in communication yields practical results. Now, if you look back up the page to verse number uh, 23 in Romans 8, or actually, I think I want to start with verse number 22. It says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now, I think that if we're determined that we're going to distinguish groanings, I would say that those in verse number 23 are ours, those in verse number 26 are God's. Now the question then is how does a Christian find peace and contentment in the midst of a troubled life? Now Jesus said that as his people that we are destined for persecution. We are destined for suffering, for desertion of family. He said there is a sword instead of peace. How does a Christian maintain his hope in those times? And further, who would be convinced to become a Christian when we're told this is the inevitable course of our lives? And we ought not to deceive people on that point. Well, we find the answer in these verses. Uh, a Christian prays. He has an avenue to God. There's this line of communication that is open every day. And he receives the assurance that God will faithfully perform this promise to redeem the body. Now most of us are, are getting on in life, a little bit in the later stages of our lives, and we're not that far from glory. And wh whether the Lord comes or whether we die, 
uh, we're going to see him. But we have this, this hope in us that we can maintain, we can carry on, we can make it there by the grace of God. And we have that spirit within us communicating back and forth with our spirit that we do belong to him. So when you hear a Christian say, woe is me, then you can be sure that there's something wrong with the prayer life. It's, it's not all that it should be. So it needs some work. But we're all guilty of that. I, I know that we are. Uh, we all start to feel sorry for ourselves and think, why is it so hard for me to live my life? Well, people get so discouraged by that that they do the wrong things many times. You know, the standard answer for pastors in counseling sessions is to say to people, pray. Keep on praying. And then when you're through praying, pray some more. Some years ago, I had a, a faithful Christian man come into my office for counseling. He was in sin. He had a problem. It was a serious one. So he came down. He sat before me and asked me what he should do. Now, I knew this is a man that claimed salvation, had been saved for years. So we began our conversation, and I listened to his concerns. And when he finished, I said, you already know what I'm going to tell you. He knew what he was doing wrong. And so I said to him, you need to confess your sin. You need to pray about it. He knew what I was going to say. I knew what I was going to say. And he just said, at the end of it, thanks. I just needed somebody to remind me to keep praying. And listen, when you think about prayer, folks, don't believe that prayer is somehow magically going to get you out of a problem. If it's sickness or financial issues, the answer to your prayer may not be a clean bill of health. God may not see fit to take sickness away from you. If it's a financial concern, God's not necessarily going to make you rich. But what God does is to tell you, I can teach you how to be content with things the way they are. I can teach you how to live through that and work through that. And so God may say to us, I can give you joy and peace and contentment despite the troubles because you know I'm always in control. And if God controls it all, what could you do better? There is nothing you could do better. What wrong thing will God do with your life? Remember Paul spoke of his thorn in the flesh, a, a sickness of some sort that plagued him. That's what many believed that it was. So he prayed that God would remove it from him. He thought, I will surely be a better servant if you'll just take this away. And God didn't. Instead, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, if you will, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'd like us to read a, a great passage of scripture together. If you experience trouble in your life and that's really bothering you, let, let's take a look for a moment at what Paul went through and how he handled it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Well, when we look at that, there's much trouble in those verses, and it only gets worse from the human perspective. Next, Paul says in verse 11, For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake 
that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, Paul means there that because of the preaching of the cross, he was always a candidate for death. Just the thing that he preached. Someone was always out for his skin trying to kill him. That's bad. But then he goes on, verse 12. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Paul was giving his life that we would hear the gospel. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believe, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Do you remember we discussed this, uh, folks, in, uh, in uh, one of the past sermons about the Spirit's ministry and raising Jesus from the dead? I mean, there was the Spirit working all the way through his life from the day that he was born. From day one of the incarnation through his boyhood life, he grew in wisdom and stature, superintended entirely by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came at his baptism. The Spirit was there in his temptation. The Spirit was there in the public ministry. The Spirit was there when he prayed in the garden. As we read a moment ago, all the time the Spirit was in him and kept working in him until Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, verse number 15, he says, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though, listen, our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And this next verse is one of the most amazing, I think, we find in Scripture. For our light affliction. After Paul has just written all these things that he wrote about, and you see other places in, in the Corinthian letters where things that he went through, he calls it light affliction. But this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now we flow right down into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Now you see how those verses parallel Romans 8? The whole creation groans, waiting for the renewal of the earth. We groan for the glorification of the body. And it's then that we receive the permanent house for our souls, a redeemed body that is like the one of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, If so, be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, forget for just a moment that when he speaks about clothing, he's talking about this beautiful suit that I'm wearing. Or Tate, or Tate is wearing over there. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the body. We don't want to be enclosed. We don't want to remain a spirit that floats around forever. We want a body. We desire to be rid of this body, not because it's flesh, but because it's sinful. So we groan to be clothed with a better body, a perfect body. Now listen to... Uh, this, this great promise in verse 5. Now he that wrought for us the selfsame thing is God who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Oh, he just brings it all back together to uh, and focus 
by, by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And that adds to the last discussion that we had in another, the last message about the guarantee of our future bodily redemption and glorification is the Holy Spirit. That God gave him as a pledge that although we do have this sufferings and we have the persecution, we have the hardships, one day we're all going to be relieved of these burdens. So we groan in our souls. There's the tumult of anxiousness, but the Spirit is there to quiet us. And to let us know we have a direct line of communication with God. And he is in control of all things. Now let me, let me close with this. In the past, I believe that many of our church members were just too much involved with politics. Always worrying about who is going to win the election. So I remember preaching in an election year many years ago. A few years ago. And after my sermon... Um, on, on a Wednesday evening, some came to me and said, well, I'm glad that you didn't mention politics in the Wednesday evening sermon. And the reason they were happy that I didn't mention it because the election didn't go their way. And so they, were, they didn't want to be reminded of what had just happened, their fears and their dissatisfaction and all they have with election results. Now, for those of you that are wondering, this was years ago. It, it wasn't the most recent presidential election. So on the Sunday after the election, I was asked about prayer. And the question was, if it is God's will, who is in control of all things, if it was in God's will that the president be reelected, should we still pray that his immoral policy should be overthrown? Is all lost because of the election? And the first thing I would say to this is that in the present state of our political parties, there are no good outcomes no matter who you vote for. One may be a little better than the other, I don't know, but in the end, it's usually two godless people pretending to be moral and just and do the right thing. They are religious, and there's not a nickel's worth of difference in their morality, I don't think. Well, maybe, maybe a little bit of difference in that, but morality doesn't get us to heaven, does it? But I hope by the time of the next election, both parties change their tune. I, I, hope, I sincerely hope that. Well, how do, we, how do we pray about this? Well, the way that we pray about all these things that are going on is we pray for God's kingdom to come. That's what Jesus said. Pray for God's kingdom to come. We keep praying that God's will will be done. We can't see ahead to what God is doing. We don't know the purposes of how all this thing works out, but we take comfort that God controls kingdoms. God sets up kings. He tears down kingdoms. God establishes it all. So we just leave it in God's hands. And so for you and me, I would say, whatever the government does, however elections turn out, do not let it dampen our enthusiasm for serving Jesus Christ. I may groan and I wonder what the economy may do. I wonder where is America headed morally. I groan because the president acts without conscience as the American people do in the murdering of little babies. I groan because of that in my soul. And it looks bad. But imagine how bad it would be if God just withdrew his spirit from the world. And he let us run all things. You know, that's going to happen in the tribulation. And it'll be a very, very bad time. It'll be a mess. But God has a plan. I don't understand it all. I don't know how he does all things well. But I depend on his providence. I depend on him and his knowledge of all things future. So I depend on that promise. The Holy Spirit will always be with me. 
He will see me through all the fears and anxieties that I would otherwise experience if not for him. He's the earnest. He's God's pledge to have divine power working in us until Christ returns for us. So his spirit keeps me content in the work that I do for the church daily. What you do, it's all in the Holy Spirit's power. I quoted this song uh, at another time. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit until the work is done. Blessed be God for the Spirit of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the word that we've looked at today. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have left to be our guide, to watch over us, to work in us every day. And we pray, Lord, that we would heed the Spirit. We would listen to your word as the Spirit uses it to convict us, to convince us of our sin, and then for the need of our daily repentance so that we may look, act, work, do all things as you would do them. Lord, we want to follow you as our model. And we pray that we would live in the Spirit at all times, surrendering ourselves to what your Spirit would have us do. We pray for our church. We pray for understanding of your word. We just pray, Lord, that you would draw us close to you. And then if we should have anyone here today who hasn't uh, believed in you as Savior, I pray that uh, something that's said, the Holy Spirit would use to work in their heart. As I said earlier, I can't convince anybody to be saved. I can't argue somebody into it. And it may take weeks and months. I don't know how long, but your spirit will do the work and we depend on it. Thank you, Father, for, for all of this. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.